so where we are now is that when you see a Medicare patient, you're basically getting paid, you know, the cost of the service. You're not, you're not earning extra money on those patients in any sense. And what that's done is that's um, shifted a lot of the burden for raising revenue onto prices negotiated between hospitals, healthcare systems, and private insurance companies. So in order to make up for those lower margins that hospital systems get through Medicare, they negotiate harder with private insurance. This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh business blog. To learn more, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu slash news. Welcome. I'm Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast for Lehigh University's College of Business. Today is October 4th, 2023, and we're talking with Chad Meyerhofer about what you should know about the upcoming Medicare open enrollment period which starts on October 15th and runs through December 7th. Dr. Meyerhofer holds the Arthur F. Searing Professorship in Economics and is the chair of the Department of Economics in Lehigh's College of Business. His research focuses broadly on the economics of health and nutrition and involves the use of microeconometric methods to evaluate and inform public policy. Chad, thanks for joining us again on the Illuminate podcast. Hi, Jack. It's uh, good to be here. All right, let's start at the beginning. What was the original intent when the Medicare program was created in 1965? And what was covered or not covered in Medicare's original scope? So the original intent of the Medicare program was to provide a social safety net in terms of publicly available health insurance for the elderly population. Now, the way that public and private insurance in the United States evolved is somewhat unusual. During World War II, the government imposed wage controls to keep inflation from running out of control because of the limited supply of workers, uh, just because so many people were fighting over in Europe and in, um, in Asia. As a result, private companies had to compete for workers by offering additional benefits, and health insurance was one of the benefits that they started to offer. As a result of that process, health insurance became part of the employment wage package that was offered to people of working age. If you contrast it to Europe, where World War II really devastated the economy and created, a, in some cases, unsanitary living conditions and things like that, there was a much greater need to make sure everybody had health insurance. So uh, public health insurance evolved for everybody, but that wasn't the case in the United States because of this evolution of the employer-provided health insurance system. However, it became clear that eventually that wasn't sufficient because when people retired, some companies didn't offer health insurance as a retirement benefit. So a lot of older people were uninsured after they stopped working. And the Medicare program was intended to make sure that those individuals had access to health care through a public health insurance system. And it it covered the basic, the most basic health care needs. So hospitalization coverage, coverage for doctor visits. Uh, the two major areas that were left out were prescription drug coverage, because prescription drug use back in 1965, wasn't as high as it is today, and prescription drugs were relatively less expensive. And it also didn't cover dental or vision care. 
Okay, now what have been the biggest changes to Medicare in the years since then? So Medicare has changed significantly, but for many years, it, it didn't really change that much. Uh, the first large change was in 1972, where Medicare was expanded to cover people less than the age of 65 with certain health conditions. In particular, if they had end-stage renal disease or if they were on um, SSDI, which is Supplemental Security Disability Income, for at least two years, they would qualify for Medicare. So there's this under 65 disabled population that receives Medicare coverage. Then there was a small expansion in 2001 to cover people with uh, ALS that were under the age of 65. That's Lou Gehrig's disease. Right. But the largest expansion of Medicare occurred in 2006 when prescription drug coverage was implemented under the Medicare Part D program. And that was actually at the time the largest expansion of public health insurance coverage since the start of Medicare in 1965. That was the point then there where private insurance came into the Medicare world. Right. Well, private insurance had already been an element of Medicare through uh, what's called Medicare Part C, which are HMO or managed care plans. But introducing Medicare Part D was significant in that it was exclusively provided through private insurance plans. So there is no, you know, government option. There's no public option per se uh, for Medicare Part D. All the plans there are administered through private companies. Now they're regulated. They have to meet certain coverage rules, but they're, they're all basically managed by private insurance companies. And in many cases, individuals have multiple options, a large number of options to choose from with different characteristics. Right. And so that was the advent of what's what's called the Medicare Advantage plans, um, as well as pharmaceutical drugs that also cover, uh, as you just mentioned, I think a wide array of other options, including you know, a couple of the things that were left out of the original Medicare coverage of, you know, dental and vision coverage, among others. So what is the government's role in overseeing those Medicare Advantage plans, um, as well as the the pharmaceutical drug plans that are offered by by private insurance companies? Medicare Advantage was um, developed in order to introduce some choice and competition into the Medicare program. So the the general idea is that those plans are, they're essentially uh, given a payment from Medicare to cover people under their their mechanisms. And they were intended to uh, reduce costs by introducing managed care characteristics, meaning that individuals were restricted to a network of providers And in order to seek care from like specialists, they have to go through what's called a gatekeeper, meaning they have to go to their their, uh, primary care physician to receive a referral. But in exchange for those restrictions, they receive additional benefits. And so those include potentially a dental insurance component, a vision component. And after Part D was introduced, individuals had the option of either buying a standalone prescription drug plan under the Part D market, or 
buying a Medicare Advantage plan, a Medicare HMO or managed care plan that had prescription drug coverage included in it. And that's actually how many people get their drug coverage now. So those plans, they have to follow Medicare's rules with regard to the quality of coverage. And there's also limitations on the premiums that can be charged. So the premiums have to be charged within a certain band. Coverage has to meet certain certain restrictions, but outside of those those general rules, plans are allowed to develop their own healthcare networks in the way they see fit. And they're allowed to adjust the cost sharing amounts, like essentially the co-payments that they charge people in order to compete with other privately administered plans in that market. Okay, that brings us um, up to where we are now, which is, um, you know, near the, the beginning of the annual um, open enrollment period. Um, so just kind of the basics first, but why do we need an annual open enrollment period within Medicare? And what are some of the things that people should look at each year when this rolls around? Most types of insurance have an open enrollment period so that it's no different than when you sign up for health insurance through your employer. And the reason why insurance has open enrollment is because we don't want individuals to initially decide not to purchase health insurance when they're healthy and then only purchase health insurance when they become ill. That would lead to a lot of what's called adverse selection. So there would be no way to pool risk because only people who are sick would be enrolled in insurance because they'd wait until that happened to sign up for insurance. So open enrollment ensures that we get a pool of people signed up for health insurance who are both you know healthy and sick, and then we can better pool that risk across that population. It allows... Um, insurance companies to essentially raise enough premium to cover out people's uh, people's bills when they do get sick. So that's conceptually why we have open enrollment. Uh, the important thing to consider when you're navigating the Medicare open enrollment are just the all the options and think about like the things that you really want in a health insurance plan because um, there are actually quite a few options that most people have when they uh, enter open enrollment. So there's a contrast between, you know, traditional Medicare, which is parts A and B that you can sign up for. And in the advantage of that is that you can go to any, pretty much any provider you want, because almost all providers accept Medicare insurance. Mm -hmm. So if you really place a large emphasis on uh, flexibility and being able to seek care at any facility you would you would prefer, then that could be a good option for you. However, it has fairly high cost sharing associated with it. So the coinsurance rate is 20%. And 20% can be a lot when you're undergoing medical procedures for more, you know, associated with more, more expensive treatments. Now, of course, the hospitalization coverage is is fairly comprehensive and similar to what you get in a managed care plan, but it's really those outpatient costs that can be significant under traditional Medicare, and that's kind of why, you know, Medicare Advantage plans um, 
they fill in some of those costs by offering you lower co-payments. However, that's not the only way to go. Another possibility is that you can sign up for traditional Medicare and you can buy what's called a Medigap plan, which is a supplemental private insurance plan that will um, cover some of those additional costs for an additional premium. So that's a good plan for somebody who wants lots of choice. But for many people, actually, Medicare Advantage plans have a lot of advantages because uh, they're significantly less expensive, both in terms of the premium, both, you know, mainly in terms of the cost sharing, but sometimes also in terms of the premium. And they tend to provide more supplemental benefits. Uh, You know, dental care can be particularly important for older Americans, and that is usually covered. It's not necessarily covered as well as if you had a supplemental dental plan, but there's some basic dental coverage and vision coverage, and most people Mm -hmm. do access those services. So the one thing though you have to pay attention to is whether the providers you want to go to are in that managed care network, because um, usually there's limited or even no coverage for going outside the network. Now, you had mentioned that the Medicare Advantage plans um, and and a larger role for private insurance companies came into being with the idea that they would offer more competition and choice. So starting with those private insurance plans, what are some of the uh, main potential benefits that these plans have. In, in other words, you know, are, are we getting competition? Are we getting, um, you know, a, a real choice and lower costs and all those other things? And then what are some of the pitfalls of going with a private insurance plan? Right. So if we, you know, we think about the benefits to the individual versus the benefits to uh, the public at large or the government, then, right. then they, they, they vary. I think, you know, we've talked about some of the benefits to the individual in terms of lower cost sharing, more supplemental coverages. As far as the benefits to the government are concerned, as I said, they're originally intended to reduce Medicare costs, but that hasn't really happened to the extent that the government thought it would. So these these plans were originally subsidized by the government in order to encourage private insur- uh, insurance companies to offer them. And that's also true of like prescription drug plans through Medicare Part D. Those were uh, subsidized temporarily and they were reinsured by the government. And so that's why when Medicare Part D was unrolled in 2016 or 2006, there were so many plans to choose from because it was really difficult to actually lose money on those plans at that time. So some of those subsidies have been adjusted, but the subsidies for Medicare Advantage plan were in place for a long period of time. And if you looked at how much money those plans saved in terms of like lower hospitalization costs or total, you know, reductions in total medical care costs for their members relative to traditional Medicare, those savings didn't really justify the the subsidies those plans were receiving. So one of the um, factors or one of the pieces of uh, um, individual legislation that was part of the Affordable Care Act was to remove those subsidies. 
And, you know, that, so the Affordable Care Act, or otherwise known as Obamacare, that was passed in 2010. So the government reduced the subsidy to those Medicare Part C plans, those Medicare Advantage plans, by $135 billion. So it's a pretty significant reduction. So um, in terms of the, uh, the benefits, then, there is this notion that there could be some competition from uh, those plans that would save the government money, but it's just more limited than policymakers expected. Now, in recent years, there's been increasing consolidation within healthcare, both in terms of networks and providers. So what impact has that had on healthcare costs and how has Medicare responded to help shield patients from those changes? It's actually kind of interesting how this consolidation evolved. Economists talk about what's known as economies of scale as a natural reason for consolidation. And that that's just the idea that if you have a larger network, then you can provide the service more efficiently. And so an example would be like cell phone networks. You know, it's it's more attractive to have a cell phone that works all over the country through a large network than it is just to have one that works you know, within the state or within your local community. So healthcare networks um, have some of those properties in the sense that often um, if you look at the size of a healthcare network, maybe 20, 30 years ago, that those networks could be more efficient, provide lower costs and more options to patients if they were larger. And that fuels some of the consolidation we're seeing. Now, the worry is that consolidation leads to market power. And so the idea that hospitals or healthcare networks have less competition, they can increase prices. Um, And Medicare would have to push back on that. But, you know, one thing that's interesting is that Medicare indirectly helped fuel a lot of that consolidation. And that's because Medicare payments, so the amount that Medicare pays to hospitals and other providers have gone down in real terms over time. Medical systems used to rely quite heavily on these payments, and they were always above margin, you know, they always provided positive margins, meaning that when you saw a Medicare patient, you know, you were assured to make money on those visits or providing that care. And that, you know, that was always, that was the case for a long period of time. And then gradually those, those payments from Medicare went down. And then around, you know, 2003, 2004, they became slightly negative. So where we are now is that when you see a Medicare patient, you're basically getting paid, you know, the cost of the service. You're not, you're not earning extra money on those patients in any sense. And what that's done is that's um, shifted a lot of the burden for, raising revenue onto prices negotiated between hospitals, healthcare systems, and private insurance companies. So in order to make up for those lower margins that hospital systems get through Medicare, they negotiate harder with private insurance. And one of the ways they can increase their, their market power in those negotiations is by consolidating so that they can't be excluded from those private insurance networks. And so you've, we've had somewhat of an arms race between consolidation in the medical provider market and consolidation in the private insurance market. And what the data suggests is that 
you know, hospitals and healthcare systems, they've been successful through this consolidation in increasing or keeping their private insurance margins, you know, above cost. So they continue to earn positive margins on those payments. Um, and so, you know, there is always this worry, though, over the long term that those healthcare networks could start to push back against Medicare. But uh, Medicare, of course, is so large that it still will always have um, greater pricing power than those um, those healthcare networks. So Medicare just has to make sure that it doesn't cut payments so far that it could actually pose a serious threat to the operation of those facilities. And that was a concern after Obamacare was passed because Obamacare does include some significant cuts in Medicare payments. We talked about the the payment cut, the $130 so billion that was cut to Medicare Part C. Right. Well, there's also some Medicare Part A cuts in the billion, you know, the multiple billions of dollars range there that hospital systems were worried about. Now, so far, we haven't seen a lot of closures of hospitals because of those payment cuts, but it, it's always a concern. So Medicare does have to you know, use its pricing power appropriately and make sure that it, it you know, doesn't, doesn't want to overpay providers, but it doesn't want to underpay them either. So on a, on a related note, one of the most significant changes in, in recent years is allowing Medicare through legislation for the first time in history to directly negotiate drug prices. And the first list of 10 drugs selected for the, the first round of negotiation has been announced, and it includes um, the, the most expensive and some of the most used drugs on the market and ones that anybody who watches TV has certainly would know if only from the commercials, um, like Eloquist, which, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is talking about now, right. or um, and Jardians and Zeralto, Genuvia, Farsiga, Entresto, Enbrel, Imbruvica, Stellara, and Fiasp, um, and the delivery systems for this for the the insulin um, according to the u.s department of health and human services those 10 drugs alone accounted for 20 percent or 50.5 billion dollars of the total part d gross covered prescription drug costs between june 1 of 22 and may 31st of 23 which is the time period that was designated to determine which drugs were eligible for negotiation. So how successful do you think the federal government will be in negotiating lower prices? And in terms of what you were just talking about, you know, is there that same kind of balance you were talking about with the health systems where, um, you know, if they impose prices that are too low, it'll, there'll be a chain reaction in other ways in the system. Yeah. For Medicare recipients, the last thing would just be, and when would they expect to actually see lower costs, whatever they are? Sure. So it's a really interesting initiative and something that a lot of advocates have been pushing for for quite some time. And the reason for that is that we pay relatively high prices for prescription drugs in the United States. Um particularly branded drugs. So we don't we don't yeah. we don't actually pay more for generic drugs. We actually pay less than many other countries for generic drugs. 
But for branded drugs, like the ones you mentioned, we, you know, we do pay significantly more. And that's because of, you know, what economists call price discrimination. Prescription drug companies take advantage of the fact that we don't bargain for these drugs as a country, each individual insurance company through a pharmacy benefit manager will bargain for um, lower prices for these drugs. But of course, those individual companies have a lot less power than they would if they were negotiating for the entire country. Also, Americans tend to have high willingness to pay for these treatments. And so uh, drug companies take advantage of those two characteristics by charging us higher prices than individuals in other countries. So this is a way to leverage our collective market power through the Medicare program to bargain for lower prices. And you know, for drugs that are used predominantly by older Americans, we're talking about almost the entire market. So it would be similar to, you know, the country of Canada negotiating on behalf of its citizens for lower prices, which it does. In the case of drugs that are used by the entire population, of course, you know, Medicare will have a little less bargaining power because it's only representing a portion of that market, although usually a pretty large portion. So if we look at the experience of other countries, we can expect that these negotiations will be successful in lowering the prices that Americans pay for these drugs through the Medicare program. It'll be interesting to see how this, uh, these, these prices, this price setting through Medicare or these negotiations through Medicare affect how much private insurance companies pay. Because, you know, one possibility is that these drug companies uh, negotiate a harder bargain with PBMs and private insurance companies for people under 65 in order to shift essentially revenue generation from the Medicare market to the private insurance market like we've seen with health insurance. Or it could go the opposite way because um, if Medicare is such a large portion of the market for these drugs, that that could just become the new market price. At a minimum, though, I would I would expect this to significantly lower the cost of these drugs for Medicare recipients. Now, unfortunately, you know, there's been a lot of talk about this initiative recently because it was, you know, that it's being implemented. But uh, you know, unfortunately, people won't actually see those savings for several years. So there's two rounds of negotiations that occur before the final negotiated prices are determined. And that's going to happen over the next two-year period. So these prices, these lower prices, won't actually take effect until January of 2026. And finally, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think our listeners should know as they consider their options during the open enrollment period? You know, I would just recommend that they do take some time to go through all their options during open enrollment and learn a little bit about the plans that are uh, available to them. So we we have a tendency to want to minimize uh, mundane or, you know, administrative tasks. So um, a lot of people will have private insurance through a company that they were, you know, when they were working and let's say, you know, it's Blue Cross Blue Shield or it's Aetna. And so they will have had that type of insurance for many, many years. And then when they transition onto Medicare, oftentimes those companies will um, try to convert them from their employer-provided insurance to 
a Medicare plan and or you know Medicare Advantage plan, and that's perfectly fine. But there are a lot of options available to people, so I you know I think it is worth it to spend some time looking at all the plans. They can go to Medicare's website and see what plans are available in their area, and. And this 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 is particularly the case if they're currently in a plan that doesn't have uh, supplemental coverages for dental care or vision attached to it, uh, because there are now a lot of plans that offer those supplemental benefits, and they don't necessarily cost more than plans that don't offer the benefits. Sometimes they even cost less. If you haven't evaluated your 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 plan for a while, I think it's a good idea to do that. You could end up saving yourself some money and allowing things to run more smoothly when you do need care. The only thing to caution is just to make sure that the providers you want to continue to see remain in the healthcare network of the plan you choose. If if that's a you know if that is a Medicare Part C or Medicare Advantage plan, so that's there's two ways to do that. You can um, you can go onto the plan's website and you can enter your provider's name and they, they should have a way of verifying uh, that that provider is eligible uh, to receive payments from that plan. Or you can just call your physician's office directly and ask them if they participate in that plan. Right. And so uh, many of these plans like Blue Cross and Blue Shield um, or you know United Healthcare at another large companies, they do have pretty large networks. So usually, you know, if it's more of an issue that you're geographically restricted. So you, if you live outside a major metropolitan area and, but, you know, you're maybe an hour or two away from that area and you choose the Medicare Advantage plan, it's possible that you may not be able to see providers in that city because they're in a different managed care region. So the example I would give, you know, in Pennsylvania where, where we're located is, you know, there's like for Blue Cross, for example, there's the capital region, which includes mm -hmm. the Lehigh Valley and Harrisburg. And then there's um, the independence region, which includes Philadelphia. So if you're in a managed care plan and you live in the Lehigh Valley, you know, you can typically go to providers here. You can go to, you know, providers near Hershey, Pennsylvania, but you wouldn't be able to go to providers down in Philadelphia. That would be out of network. Now, some of these Medicare Advantage plans do offer out-of-network coverage. It's just that your cost sharing is going to be higher. So that's not a bad way of preserving some independence just in case there's really somebody you want to go to that's outside your network, but still getting lower costs for people in your local area. Well, I'd like to once again thank our guest, Chad Meyerhofer, for giving us some things to think about with the uh, open enrollment period. Chad's research has appeared in top field journals in economics and information systems, such as the American Journal of Agricultural Economics, Information and Management, the Journal of the American Medical Informatics Association, and the Journal of Health Economics, as well as leading journals in health policy, medicine, and dentistry. Chad's research also has been supported by the National Institutes of Health and the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business Blog. To hear more podcasts featuring Lehigh Business Thought Leaders or to follow us on social media, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu news. I'm Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast. Thanks for listening.